to John chapter 6. John 6, verses 41 through 51. John 6, 41 through 51. So the Jewish leaders grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Please be seated. Lord, we pray and we thank you that your Holy Spirit, present here among us, can and will do what we can't do with our intellects or our mere earthly desires. But we thank you that you uh, inhabit the preaching of your word. And we thank you for this text and we thank you for what you're going to do as we interact with it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're at a section in scripture where uh, these theological thoughts just come fast and furious. Um, uh, the Gospels, uh, the other ones, the, the synoptics as they are called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, intersperse a lot of times the teaching with some action, with some things Jesus did. Uh, maybe uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is one concentrated block of teaching, uh, but nothing like John is. And John takes these incidents in Jesus' lives, but he spends so much uh, in the theological teaching. And I would say that if it's in the Bible, it's important. So we get it. We look for it. We try to understand it. And we say, uh, it's there for us. It's there for us to eat just as we eat bread. And Jesus, in this chapter, talking about himself uh, as the bread of life, uh, is, is appropriate. Now, I asked a question in our sermon title. I didn't ask a question. I'm asking the question from the sermon title. What is your current position in relation to Jesus? What is your current position when it comes to Jesus? And I'm not asking even about a, a place or a physical something or other, I'm asking about your intellect, your regard to Jesus, 
the same way that maybe in the stock market they say, well, our position on this stock is hold, or this, our position is sell. Our position is when it gets to this number, do this. But if it's not going to hit this number, do that. There's a website that's kind of interesting. I find myself looking at it, and I'm no uh, day trader. I'm no finance guy at all. Uh, but it's an interesting site called The Motley Fool. And the Motley Fool had an article on Disney stock. It said it's been a brutal year for Walt Disney stock. Shares have slid nearly 7% uh, year to date, even as the Standard & Poor's 500 has risen more than 16%. Ouch. But investors might be wondering whether this is one of those times where famed investor Warren Buffett's advice to be, quote, greedy when others are fearful holds true. After all, the stock is down 7% year-to-date and 26% over the last five years. This poor performance is in spite of the fact that Disney's trailing 12-month revenue has risen almost 50% during this period. Let's take a closer look at what's going on with the business and the stock. And the article goes on to make its analysis, and they're saying, now is the time to buy it. That's what they say. I'm not here to give you stock advice, but I'm saying this. What if the Motley Fool had an article on Jesus as the bread of life? And whether you should invest not your money, but your entire life into Jesus Christ. And they analyzed Jesus and who Jesus is and the claims he made and the status he had in the world. What would their recommendation be? What's their position on Jesus Christ and whether you should indeed give your life to follow him. What would Warren Buffett say? Oracle of Omaha. What would he say about you and Jesus? You might say, well, I don't play the stock market. I can't afford it, and I don't understand it, or I don't trust it. Therefore, I have no position on any stock, and that's your business. But even if you don't have a position on financial doings in your world, you must have, and you do have. Even if you say you don't have, you do have a position on Jesus Christ. And you are making, or have made, or will make, and continue to evaluate Jesus Christ as worthy of investing in, of eating that bread, or as worthy of saying, get away from that one. That's toxic. What is your position? What is your position on Christ? What is your position in relation to Jesus? There's three things in this section of God's Word that we need to look at this morning as we ask ourselves uh, should one invest their life in Jesus? The first point that is made in this section is this. Christ's life is a stumbling block to belief in Jesus when it comes to our human reasoning. When it comes to our human reasoning, Christ's life is a stumbling block. These people came to Jesus. Jesus was saying, I'm the bread of life. They said, listen, 
We know your dad. We know your mom. We know where you live. We rode our bikes around this neighborhood and played pickup baseball. We did all this stuff that you did. We've known you since you were little. What makes you think you're special, Jesus? What makes you think you're special? You say, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Come on. I've got your Christmas card every year. We saw you grow up. You're not special. You're not special. You're one of us. And human reasoning looks at Jesus and says, this is not worth me investing in. We can talk about being the bread of life all he wants, but it's not going to affect me because I know him. What did they do with the miracles then? What about those miracles Jesus was doing? Water into wine, healing uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, teaching as one not like the scribes. What about that? What would they have done with the miracles? How would they have explained that away? The answer is they would have explained it away somehow because they humanly did not want to invest and follow Jesus the way Jesus said, follow me. They would have deliberately done what we do today, ignored the miracles, ignored the teaching that was with authority. And how about us today? What do we do with Jesus? Not the Jesus that culture has watered down or mythologized or brought around. A lot of people call themselves Christians today, and their position on the real Jesus of the Bible is not worth your time. Christianity, and I'm a Christian, a Christian nation, those things are such a broad term these days. And we say about Jesus as a culture so much, we say, well, he was a standout man. He made his mark on history, obviously. He was a a good guy, some people might say. Some people say he was nailed to a tree for telling people to be good. No, he wasn't nailed to a tree simply for telling people to be good. He was nailed to a tree for telling people that there's no way they could be good, that the only one who could be good was himself, and he was God from heaven. But what do we do? Jesus, the bread who came down from heaven, that's not equitable. That's saying Jesus is a person who's better than and above everybody else, and and we got to take him down a peg or two. We know your dad. We know your mom. We know you're just a person like us. You were born at the same hospital. Same doctor delivered you. Those kinds of things that we would say to Jesus had he come and, and claimed that is what they would say to them. We played baseball with you, whatever. You're not special, Jesus. You're not special because Jesus' life is a stumbling block to belief when people just humanly reason. I thought, what if? What if they put Jesus' miracles in, just ran a, like they do, like maybe when they're, uh, say, a high school football player is good and a coach takes an interest in him and puts a string of his greatest hits and blocks and catches and all that stuff and puts a, a highlight reel together and sends to colleges to try to get him noticed. What if they took Jesus' miracles and Jesus in action and put them all together on a string? 
what would people say if they saw that? You know what they'd say? Hey, there's some good special effects there. How did they make that happen? They would deny the miracles. They would deny Jesus because human reasoning does not look at Jesus and say he's worth following. At this point in Jesus' history, he was not even yet despised and rejected of men. Uh, At this point, he was just like a, a regular person, not a standout from the crowd. He would go on to become vilified, to become tortured, to become uh, hated. The the religious leaders of the day would collude with the Roman political leaders. They would take him and beat him up so badly beyond recognition. And they would parade him in the streets, and people would mock him. And the Roman soldiers would mock him. And then what would your position be? Even if you said, I see something in this guy. He may be average, but he's, there's something about him. Nobody was saying that when the persecution of Jesus came. And then not just the motley fool, but all of us motley fools would be saying the same thing. Sell, sell, sell. Run, run, run. One of his disciples, Peter, even said, I'm going fishing. That's all. I'm going back to my fishing rod, my boat. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I can't believe I invested three years of my life following. can't believe I believed. Human reasoning, human looking at things. Jesus is not the one you or anyone would follow. You think? Had God not supernaturally worked in your life, if you were there then, even seeing him in the flesh, you would have followed through all that? I I would hate to say that, because not many people did. His mom, maybe a few of the women that that loved him, even uh, stayed there and grief-stricken at the cross, and everybody else was gone. The advice from clear thinking people would would be, he's not the Messiah, let's wait for the next one. He was close at a time we thought he could be, but he's not the Messiah. And that's what Christ's life is as a stumbling block to belief, to human reasoning. Scripture calls him the stone that makes men stumble, the rock that makes them fall. You will either build your life on Jesus as the cornerstone or you will trip and go tumbling down, as most people seem to do, into eternity without that Christ. That's the first thing we see. Human reasoning says now. Look at Christ. Look at his life. Strong starter, burned out, crucified, put in a tomb. Second thing we see from this passage, this does not have to be controversial. It shouldn't be controversial. Don't let it be controversial. Say right now, I'm going to believe what the Bible says. I'm going to believe what Jesus says about himself. Because the next point is this. Human reasoning is incapable of belief. 
without the work of God. Human reasoning is incapable of belief without the work of God. Jesus said, look at the verse. He said, no one, trying to find it here, uh, no one can, verse 44, no one can come to me. No one can come to me. If he'd have stopped there, he'd have said, oh man, we're in trouble. He didn't stop there, but he did say this, no one can come to me. That's an, no one, absolute, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Something has to draw a person to Christ. None of us can brag that we're smarter than our brother or sister who's not a Christian yet because we heard it the same way that we were smart enough to believe. No, we didn't come. No one can come. Bible, truth, black and white. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is not the only place in Scripture where this is taught. Take this verse out. It's still all over the Bible. Romans 9, just as, as a one off the top of my head. Listen. We are in the thrall. In thrall to all the wickedness of the world. That singer who sang that song, Born This Way, yeah, she's right. We're born this way. We're born with it. We had our, our men's group yesterday, and we talked about sin and, and uh, our federal headship and how Adam, the first Adam, and Adam all die, and Christ all are made alive. First Adam, second Adam. That's a good thing for us to think about. Uh, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Uh, therefore, all have sinned. And I told this story that if you've been around here, you're like, okay, okay, here's where you take your 15-second vacation right now if you've been here for a long enough time. But I love this story. It just fits, fits so perfectly. And it's a cute thing, and it's great. It's great that I caught my oldest daughter <laughs> telling a lie one time, right? <laughs> She's 9 or 10. That was a red, red-headed lie. You don't want to lie. But we all lie. But I thought, okay, I'm going to be one of these contemporary dads. I'm not just going to deal with the lie. I'm going to ask, why did you lie? Let's get to the root sin of the lie. And so I said, okay, why did you lie? And I thought she'd say, because I wanted a bigger piece of cake than my sister. And then we'd talk about all that. You know what she said? Well, those of you who've been here for a while know what she said. She said, because you and mom are liars and I was born to you and you just passed it down to me that she didn't use the word propensity at that age, but, but that propensity to lie just came tumbling down to me. And I thought, that's brilliant. She's right. She's been listening. We are born in sin and iniquity. Our, our, our uh, mothers conceived us is, is how it says. We do these things. Uh, the question is, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? The answer is, we sin because we're sinners. And listen, we need Jesus. Uh, human reasoning is incapable of belief unless God 
does something to us. It's God's adducent action drawing us to himself through the second Adam, Jesus, the bread of life. It's not that the world draws us away, that we are all born with this slate that wants to love God and the world pulls us away, um, which is abducent, abducent and adducent. I'm going to explain that in a minute while I use those words. But we think that what does the drawing of us uh, one way or the other uh, is, is that the world draws us away from Jesus and, and then we're in trouble. What's true is we are born with a propensity to be anti-God and God does the drawing. Now, abducent and adducent, okay. My daughter, Abby, gave me for my birthday one of the things she gave me, a dictionary of the strange, curious, and lovely. The dictionary describes itself as a 3,500-word lexicon of the most beautiful and interesting words in the English language. This work's aspiration is not a modest one, namely rescuing from slumbrous, slow-flating oblivion the most beautiful blah-blah-blah language, but it's saying this, it's hoped that some may improve the language further by finding fitting, creative, and colorful usage for these words in our modern, ever-evolving tongue. And I laughed with Abby. I said, I'm going to take the first three words, and every week I'm going to work one of these wonderful, strange, obscure words into a sermon. Abducent. Drawing. Drawing in. It was easy to put that one in here because there is a drawing toward us, a pulling toward us. In case you're wondering, the other words, uh, um, abdominus. So I could say, whether you, abdominus meaning a large and protuberant belly. <laughs> I could say whether you're abdominus or not abdominus, you'll want to join us for snacks after church. So that's the second one. The third one, um, abderian, given to bouts of laughter. That would fit with this because when Jesus said, I'm the bread of heaven, and they were incredulous because they said they knew him, that would be called an Abderian crowd. They laughed at him. You're not the bread from heaven. You're not special. So if you uh, see Abby, Paul, you can tell Abby, I got all three off the checklist now. The drawing, the drawing too. No one comes to the Lord unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's got to be something outside of ourselves because we are so messed up. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Scripture never says that God draws people away from eternal life, takes them off the path of heaven and gives them spiritual death. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, uninterested in the things of God, until God draws his chosen people to himself. You better not take credit for your own salvation. Give the credit and the glory to the God who saved you. Don't overthink it. Just accept it and say thank you, God, and let it humble you. Not pride. Pride would be if you could save yourself and somebody else didn't. That would be pride. No, humility says, I was dead and God made me alive. Thank you, God, for doing that. Jesus said, I'll say it again, no one 
can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's this ongoing conference down in Philadelphia. It's been going on for 50 years now. Insiders will call it the PCRT, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformation Theology. Paul and I have been to a couple of them when we moved up to Delaware. I've started listening through them all the way back to 1974, 50 years. And I've said, I'm just going to listen to one or two of these a week. I want to hear what these theologians, how they presented God uh, then. And think about our time now. And just, I want to learn something and grow. And I learned something this week that applies to this sermon. You're going to learn it too if you listen for a minute. The theme of that first conference in 1974 was called the Doctrines of Grace. One of the conference speakers, someone named Dr. Ralph Kuyper, um, uh, not spelled uh, the way I'm used to it being spelled, like, like these Kuypers that we get to worship with here, but K-E-I-P-E-R, Ralph Kuyper, addressed the condition of the world and the way that we Christians are tempted to think when we consider the increasing depravity and lostness. He preached a sermon on Romans 1. And in 1974, I'm going to tell you, they were as alarmed at the direction of the world and the sin that they saw coming as we are now. They could fast forward 50 years, they go, man, this is, this is where we knew it was headed. And it is. And we look at this world and we get so discouraged. And we say, how can people... How can they sink so anti-God, so low? Boy. And he said then, what was needed for me to hear now, where I'm tempted to just say, well, forget it all then. God, just come back, take this world, wrinkle it all up, and, 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 and fire it down into hell, and, and make that new world. And, and I'm just depressed. I just want to find a place and go, because I can't. And he said, you Christians, if you're Calvinists, if you're sovereignty of God type people, uh, that is the, the wrong sinful attitude to take. The attitude that I have and am tempted to have. He said this. Be These are some direct quotes. Three, three sentences and then a summary one. Be, quote, be delivered from the fear of the world and have an eye on what God is going to do. Be delivered from the fear of the world and have an eye on what God is going to do. Later on, he said, underlying all this depravity is the sovereignty of God. That's true. God is either sovereign or not. Well, he's sovereign. So underlying all this depravity that we see is the sovereignty of God. And then he said this, God's basic purpose is not to destroy, but to give a difficult time so we can present God's mercy. He was talking about something. I may have lifted that sentence out of the, 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 the paragraphs in between for context, but he says, listen, uh, God's basic purpose is not destruction. And isn't, aren't we going to hear this in John 10? Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Uh, what's God doing then, if it's all here? Well, maybe there's an opportunity for us as things sink and people say, there's no hope in this world. 
I mean, you look at suicide rates these days, teenage suicide rates, uh, especially, uh, and, and why is it this way, uh, younger white girls depressed by this world at an unprecedented rate with all this stuff we have. Somebody says, well, maybe it's the stuff we have that's doing, or whatever it is. There's a world that's going, what do we have, Christians? Walk away from this world? Or say, underneath all of this, there's a sovereign God at work who is a God who saves Summarizing, he said, Lord Jesus, you've saved me. Do the same for them as you've done for me. That's how we are to regard the world. Even as it seemingly pushes the limits, shaking its fist or raising its finger at God. That's how we do this. Got two sermons to listen to in this conference the Christian's superlative optimism by a guy named Roger Nicole, that's next. And then this same guy, Kuiper, witnessing in the light of God's sovereignty. Can't wait. Need that. We need that. Listen, people can't come unless God draws them. It's not that they can't pray a prayer. It's not that they can't... uh, understand the words on the paper. It's our will. God changes the will. Bishop Ryle said this in the 1870s about uh, the inability of, of people to come. Of what does this inability of man consist? In what part of our inward nature does this impotence reside? Here is a point on which many mistakes arise. Forever let us remember that the will of man is the part of him which is in fault. His inability is not physical, but moral. It would not be true to say that a man has a real wish and desire to come to Christ, but no power to come. It would be far more true to say that a man has no power to come because he has no desire or wish. It is not true that he would come if he could. It is true that he could come if he would. The corrupt will, the secret disinclination, the lack of heart, are the real causes of unbelief. It is here the mischief lies. The power that we lack is a new will. It is precisely at this point that we need the drawing of the Father. So much for the term seeker-friendly in my book. Final point that Jesus makes as he's talking in in this section is... uh, for those whose position is to invest in Jesus. This final point gives us comfort. And what I want you to hear and us to be reminded of is that your Christianity, when you came to Christ, started then. Your Christianity is now. You are a Christian right now. Salvation of a believer is a present possession. What did Jesus say? The one who believes in me has, currently, has everlasting life. You're not just limping to the finish line, trying to get to heaven where all things are new and the tears are wiped away. No, you are are walking toward heaven. Some of us are limping. 
Some of us limp for a while, then we run for a while, then we turn around and help somebody else, and somebody helps us. We're going to heaven. But it's not that at heaven where all the, the, the Christianity begins. It's right here. Present possession. We have it now. There is so much in this world to, to distract us and make us forget that there is a God who's visited us. We are Christians. We live and we can process the things from this world Christianly. I mean, it's just a weird thing that, so last night I'm sitting down, I'm reviewing this, thinking through these things. I get two alerts, uh, Wall Street Journal news alerts, within 20 minutes of each other, 19 minutes. Here's one. WSJ news alert. Morocco earthquake kills more than 2,000 people. 19 minutes later, Wall Street Journal news alert. Coco Goff wins the U.S. Open, her first major title. And I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about that young tennis player. I'm thinking about 2,000 people who didn't even know they were going to die and they're dead. And, and some of them are families, and so there's nobody mourning because they're all dead. But others are, are families and connected. And, they're, and I'm thinking, they couldn't be more opposite, but they're both worthy of news alerts. And I've got the Alabama Crimson Tide football game on the radio because i got all these Alabama fans that I like, and, and I kind of hope Alabama wins for, for my Alabama friends down there in the Florida panhandle. And somebody buying ad space on the Alabama football radio is, is called uh, visitpensacola.com. So I've got that in my mind, of Pensacola and the first, you know, uh, first house, first job, where Paul and I started out. And I'm thinking, I'm hearing them say, come to Pensacola. And I'm thinking about 2,000 people here. And I'm thinking about Coco Goff winning her first uh, tennis title as a teenager. I'm thinking about my son who texted me and said he's going to see Alice Cooper this weekend in concert. And he says, I'll tell you 60 years later if he's any good, LOL. <laughs> and I said, well, LOL, <laughs> let me know. I'm curious. And I'm thinking about my daughter sending pictures of the grandkids who hated their Halloween costumes and are scared of them and, and don't like putting them on. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about my other daughter headed to Spain to walk this Camino Real thing and, and take a month and walk through Spain. And, and, and how nervous do I have to be about her safety over there? I'm just thinking about all these things and the, the dinner Paula brought me. And you go, man, how do the pagans... How do non-believers even process and live in this world? Now, there's a lot to think about. Just hitting us that's not spiritual in nature. Just life. Thunderstorms rolling through, scaring my dog. There's all these things. Uh, the one singer said, you know, I was, we would say there's a lot to think about. He said there's a lot to drink about. But listen, you have a lot of things going on. You've got so much going on. You can't chart it all. Things that tempt you to worry. Things that distract you. Things that enrage you. Things that bring hope to you. Things that bring comfort. How do you do this? How do you process it? And I'm going to tell you the only way to absorb all of these things properly and rightly is through that grid of the first thing that matters the most for eternity. And that is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's 
the only way to process all of these things in your life, how to sort it out. You can only properly process everything that comes your way in light of the eternal as someone who is partaking daily of the bread of life. The more aware you are of the fact that you were saved positionally, that helps you. The more you are aware of the fact that your eternity is here, that helps you. But you need to say, and this is what we call sanctification, here's justification, here's glorification, in that sanctification of life, thinking of things Christianly because you yourself are a Christian and you have a relationship with God. And then you process these things. Only then can you properly grieve along with those who are grieving in Morocco. Otherwise, they're just statistics. Then you can pray for that little tennis player. Say, oh, I hope, I hope she knows the Lord. If she doesn't, I hope she finds the Lord. I hope she gives credit to God. God, help her to really enjoy this and, and all of that. And you can, you can be glad. and you can, you can say her achievement is good that she's worked in her life to do. And you can want the best. As a Christian, you can want the best for people. I can think back and say, is it really true or just a rumor that Alice Cooper went golfing with R.C. Sproul? It's true he goes to R.C. Sproul's theological conferences. I saw an interview with him where they said, what do you do? He goes, well, first thing I do every day is read my Bible and pray with my wife of 60 years. Like that Alice Cooper? We're not talking about the same person? All I know him as is every last day of school for Sandy, I send her the, the video of schools out for the summer just as kind of a running thing uh, to her for her to celebrate school being out. But listen, if that's true... He really was, as, uh, as I've read, the son of a Baptist pastor who rebelled from God, who God reached down and saved in the middle of his career, and he turned things around, and he writes albums and does things for God. Well, then, you know what? That blows my mind. I'm still not as interested in, in listening to the music myself, but I can say, wow, if that's true, and it, it seems to be, then, boy, God can save all these people that go to his concerts including my son. And I can pray with hope and joy, and I can look forward and say there's a sovereign Christian God, uh, a God who's a Christ- who, who, who loves his Christians, and there's a God who's at work, and I can filter all these things that way. In Christian, it is positive. If you're a Christian, it is positive. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You can look at life and you can filter it that way. And that's the only way. You better be partaking of the bread of life every day, regularly. Consume. Uh, Think about Jesus and your relationship to God through him. Think about what it means. Uh, Why has God left you on earth? Well, to live as a Christian, to be salt and light in the world. That's what we're talking about, the present reality of our Christian faith. It's not a theory. It's real. You've repented. You've put your faith in Jesus. You're God's daughter. 
no matter what happens tomorrow. Michael Card, Christian singer, sang a song saying, I long to see your presence in reality. I want to know you in the now. And Jesus said, you have eternal life. Not you will have. You have. So what's your position in relation to Jesus? I think most of you have followed the advice that Jesus gave in Matthew 13, where he said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think your position is, buy, invest, commit, everything for that. Physical position, it's eternal position. Uh, Listen. No one at the end will say, I'm an atheist, or when it comes to Jesus, I'm an agnostic. Listen, he carried on, Jesus did in Matthew. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not my words. That's Jesus' words in the Bible. If your mental position, your attitude toward Jesus is that he is the bread of life, then your ultimate physical position will be in that place called heaven. So I started by saying, what's your position in relation to Jesus Christ? Now I'll ask this question. What is Jesus' current position in relation to you? Been asking all morning, when you look at Jesus, what's your relationship to him? How do you evaluate him? What are you going to do? Now what about Jesus when he looks at you? Let me tell you about that. He took on flesh to be your bread of life. He took the penalty for your sin on himself to be your bread of life. His Father in heaven drew you to himself through repentance and faith in Jesus, the bread of life. And Jesus is the bread of life even now in all of your good days and your bad days. And Jesus is your bread of life in a world that would otherwise be quite scary. He's not these things, then it means you're not a Christian yet. But he's ready to welcome you into his Christian family. Didn't we just see last week? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast them out. Jesus is the one who did the buying, did the investing. Close with this one. I keep wanting to get to this whole passage um, from the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, and this is where we're going to wrap up. Jesus, uh, uh, the prophet, God says through his prophet, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, which is us, uh, we're threadbare, we're, we're, we're empty. Come, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And Jesus said in this very passage this morning, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Let's close prayer. Thank you, God, for this section of Scripture, for these words. Thank you for the uh, new perspective on life that you give to your people. Help us, Lord, to love and care for those who aren't seeking